today we're starting a brand new series. It's called God's People, A Biblical Response to Racism. Yeah, we're taking on this topic. Uh, I know the church has been generally silent on this, uh, despite all the turmoil uh, that's been happening in our society. And it, I believe it is time for God's people to rise up, to stand up, to speak up to this issue and be part of the solution instead of remaining silent and part of the problem. The United States of America, friends, is a diverse place. And right now, it is a divided place. At the Church of Christ, we are called to step into the mess and, to, and into the division. We are called to bring love and compassion and justice into times such as this. This is when the church is generally silent. It is time for us to speak up. Because, friends, when the church is silent, our nation suffers. I want to tell you about what this series is not about, first of all. You say, well, what's the series about? Well, let me tell you what it's not about. The messages of this four-week series, God's people, a biblical response to, to racism, it's not about politics, though there will be some listening who think that this is political. This is not about police. Uh, it, it, I'll tell you what it is about. It is about what God thinks about racism and injustice, and they will be about what God wants His people, the church, the body of Christ, it's going to be about what God wants His people to do about it. Now, let me give you a definition of racism so we're all on the same page. What is racism? It is the belief that groups of human beings possess different behavioral traits, and some of the traits correspond to their physical appearances. And there's a belief that those races can be divided based on this supposed superiority or inferiority of one race to another race. It may also mean prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism. It might be directed against other people simply because, and that's where the prejudice comes in, you're prejudging another person because they happen to be of another race or ethnicity than you are. Now, the modern variants of racism, they're often uh, biased in social perceptions. There are behavioral differences between the peoples, and those are seen and judged by some as better or worse traits than other people, and that's where the prejudice comes in. In the United States of America, we have to admit that our history of racism and slavery, it has led to this perception that there are powerful people who will rule over powerless people. There will be oppressors ruling over the oppressed. There are masters ruling over the subjugated. And that is wrong, and God knows it's wrong, and we know it's wrong. And most of us would agree that that has to change. Many of us agree that to a large degree it has changed. Now, how does that racist belief, we just defined racism, but how does that racist belief play out in societies? Well, these views can take the form of social action or practices or beliefs or political systems in which different races are ranked as either superior or inferior to each other. So people belonging to a certain race, they're either favored or they are discriminated against simply by the color of their skin. 
There's a great pastor in Dallas, Texas. His name is Bishop T.D. Jakes. And this week I listened again to another interview that he did with Pastor Ray Johnson of Bayside back in June for their online Thrive Conference. And Bishop T.D. Jakes, who's a black pastor, uh, and he was born in West Virginia. His grandfather was actually killed and murdered by a white man and left in the swamp wrapped in barbed wire. So he knows about the history of racism. Sometimes us who are Caucasian or white people, we think, well, racism and, and that mistreatment of blacks, this was something in our nation's history, but it really isn't something that's happening anymore. And Bishop T.G. Jake says, I can remember in my lifetime my grandmother telling me the story of my grandfather and what happened to him before I was born. Bishop T.D. Jake says, it would be really nice if when I, a black man, go into a bank that I would be afforded the same treatment and I would have the same chance to get a business loan as a white person. He says, if I'm pulled over for a traffic violation, he said, it doesn't matter that I'm a, a pastor of a large church. It doesn't matter that I'm a businessman. What matters on the street is I'm a black man getting pulled over by a police officer. So here's a question in our history, not just our nation's history, but in human history. Was racism always around? Well, the answer is no. But has racism been around for a long time? The answer is yes. And racism came into play as a result of what we call the fall in Genesis 3. Now, if you don't know what the fall is in Genesis 3, if you go to the very first book of the Bible, you know, the Bible's a library of books, 66 books altogether. The very first book is the book of origins or beginnings, and it's called Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 3, after the creation of man and, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. They have a choice whether they're going to follow God or follow their own inclinations and their own independence. They're deceived by, the, by Satan and they decide to disobey God and go their own way. And that is what we call the fall. And as a fallout of Adam and Eve's disobedience, we have all kinds of problems and sin. And it's not just individual sin in my heart and your heart. It is sin that has become systemic in fallen societies all around this planet, even here in the good old U.S. of A. Let me go back to origins now. Genesis 3, I told you, was where the fall happened, but let's back it up to the very beginning. The very first words, the very first sentence in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created everything that is, and that includes you and me. We are creations, therefore we are dependent as human beings on our creator. And God created human beings. It says in verse 26 of chapter 1, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So this is wonderful. We are created in the image and likeness of God. What a great privilege that is. The ability that we human beings have to reason and to use our creativity to invent things like the iPhone. Or I, I wish we could invent something that could clean the atmosphere. 
uh, <laughs> right now. Uh, our ability to speak, our ability to have a human will and to make decisions, and yes, created in the image of God, God will hold us morally accountable for those decisions that we make. We are made in the image of God. And then verse 27 says, So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So God created male and female, both in His image. They have equal value, equal uh, stand, standing there in creation. Men and, men and women are designed by God to work together to rule over creation. And then look what it says in verse 28. This is really interesting. It says, Then God blessed them and said to them, to, the man, to, the, to mankind, it says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over all the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God knew that His will for mankind after He created the first man and women was they would multiply and then they would spread out over the entire earth. Now, you know and I know that as you get closer to the equator, the sun gets hotter, um, the sun shines brighter, and it can, for a guy like my skin, you can get sunburned pretty easily. So what happened was over time, as God created human beings, first of all, uh, let me make this point. This is a really important point, and I don't want to forget to make it. As God created human beings, He did not create brown people after their kind. God didn't create white people after their kind. He didn't create red or yellow people after their kind. That is not Christian theology at all. That is atheistic evolutionary uh, belief, and that's where they're saying that there were different races that, that evolved from different species of apes or monkeys or chimpanzees, and therefore, since they evolved differently, one race might be considered more advanced or less advanced than another race. That's not, that's not the picture of God at all. God created mankind from one man and one woman, and all the human beings that are on the planet today are genetically related to that one man and one woman. And God made enough genetic, how would I say it? He, he elasticity. God made enough genetic elasticity that we could stretch and have different facial features. We could have different skin pigmentation. We could have uh, different, uh, I, I know, for example, that Eskimos have more, if you notice my face, do you know I, I have very little fat in my face? There's angular I don't, I, you know, some people think it's good. I think it's bad. When it gets cold in the winter, I feel it in my face. Eskimos, they have more, they have more skin, they have more fat in their face because why? So they can handle the extremely cold winters of the Arctic area, right? And God allowed that genetic elasticity for mankind to spread out over all the earth. And yet, he didn't create us different species. We are all one human species with all that awesome variety. I think God loves variety. I mean, I, was, I looked it up. God loves variety. He made over 17,000 species of butterflies. So just to watch these little butterflies, 17,000 species in the world today. God loves variety. But here's the point about God creating us. We are not going to morph into other kinds of species, right? We are all human beings. We're all made in the image of God. There is no superior 
or inferior human being based upon skin color or facial features or body type or anything like that. We were all created in the image of God. And that's important. Look what King David said. Now, King David, he wrote about a thousand years before Christ. King David was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. He was a Middle Eastern man. And when he thought about how God worked to create him, he says in Psalm 139, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, your works are wonderful, and I know them full well. Another version says, Lord, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Psalm 139 and verse 14. And so we're all meant as human beings to have a living relationship with our Creator God. But then, as I said in the fall, something tragic happened. Sin entered the world. And, then, and human beings, as they experience sin with that separation from a right relationship with God, it also created a separation from a right relationship between human beings and other human beings. Uh, as human beings started evolving and looking around at other human beings that looked different from them, maybe spoke a different language, came from a different place, had a different ethnicity. And human beings in their fallenness, they started evaluating people based upon what they thought to be superior or inferior traits. And so the, the fall into sin, this is slide nine, the fall into sin and its consequences, we have basically three things that happen. First of all, mankind was estranged from God, separated from Him by sin. Number two, we're also, we're, when we're out of a right relationship with God, we're also going to be out of a right relationship with all other human beings who are created in God's image. And then number three, the fallout that we're going to be talking about today, there is the beginning of this domination of certain people over others. And that is where racism and slavery came from. Now, just in as, as an example of slavery in the Bible, and by the way, the Bible is an amazing multi-ethnic, multicultural book. You, you can see examples of all kinds of sin in the Bible, but you can see examples of slavery, of racism, of prejudging other peoples based upon uh, no other thing other than they were different than the one people doing the judging or the evaluating. Think about the history of the Jewish people. When God rescued his people from Egypt, where were they and in what state were they in, right? So when you go to Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, so you have Genesis and then the next book is Exodus, God's people, Jacob had taken his family of about 70 Hebrews and he had taken them from the land of Canaan where Israel and Palestine is right now. And he had taken him south down to Egypt. He was invited there by his son Joseph and by Joseph's friend Pharaoh. And they came to live in the northern part of Egypt. Well, over the course of generations, the pharaohs, the, the rulers of Egypt, they started seeing the Hebrew people who were living separately and lived differently from the Egyptians. They started seeing them as a threat. And so what did they do? They started enslaving the Hebrew people and they made them work uh, to build all the, the Egyptian cities and the pyramids and all those kind of things. And that's where you have the song, Let my people go. And then Moses comes up and he becomes the deliverer and God says, I'm going to send you to my people to be a deliverer. And Moses gets sent to Pharaoh and he says, God, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. There is an example right there in the Bible, a clear example of racism 
where even God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved, where the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrews simply because they were from another race, right? So there's an example in the Bible. Now, let's go back to the United States of America. Let's go back to American history, and let's take a quick trip through American history, right? Go back to 400 years ago to Jamestown, Virginia. The year is 1619. There is a Dutch ship called the White Lion that was a privateer. It was down in the waters outside Veracruz, Mexico. It had encountered a Portuguese ship that was bringing slaves over from Angola to Mexico. The privateer got in a fight with that slave ship. The privateer won. They took 20 of those uh, black people from the Portuguese ship, put them on the White Lion. The White Lion sailed north for Virginia and stopped at Jamestown and in 1619 for a trade of food. I think the word at that time was victuals. Uh, these black people were traded and they were called at the time indentured servants. The only problem was they never got their freedom, right? Actually, that's not true. There were a few of the black people that were in that 1619 group. One person, in fact, not only got his freedom, he became a slave owner. So slavery, was, that's how slavery began in colonial America. It's interesting um, uh, just how that came about. That was 1619. Now you go to 250 years later, we come to the Civil War, and it's 1865. The American Civil War was concluding. It was fought over slavery. People will say it was fought over states' rights, but when you think what was the states' rights of the South, they wanted the states' rights to keep slavery going. So ultimately, it really was about slavery, and that's where President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, basically said in January of 1863, if the southern states do not stop fighting and make peace, then all of the African-American slaves that are down in the South, they are now free people. And, of course, Lincoln made good on that with the 13th and 14th Amendments after the Civil War. And 600,000 Americans, it was the worst war in American history as far as the loss of American life. 600,000 Americans lost their lives in that Civil War, dying and giving their lives for the abolishment, the abolition of slavery in the USA. So, yay, we made, we made a move in the right direction. But you know what? 1865, we still had a long way to go. Why? Because the cultural values of racism and superiority of one race over another, of whites over black, was still rampant in the South, and that did not go away just because the South lost the Civil War. So 1877 now, all the way up until 1965, and I say 1877 because the Union Army was in the South enforcing equality for blacks for 12 years until President Grant left office, and then Reconstruction was over, and now Jim Crow law sent in the South, and it was, quote, you know, the slaves were, quote, quote, free, but were they really treated equally? Were they really treated with dignity the way they were supposed to be, right? So post-Civil War in the South, the Southern states began to enact what are called vagrancy laws. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to get all this information and give it to you, the, some of the more modern history of American race relations and how racism played out in the United States of America in the last hundred years. It's based on a couple of videos that I saw on YouTube by a man named Phil Vischer. 
He is the creator of the Veggie Tales Christian series for kids, and he is also a strong Christian man, and he wanted to give a, a history lesson as to what's been happening in modern American history when it comes to slavery or when it comes to racism. So in the South, now it's 1877 all the way up till 1965, the Southern states began to enact vagrancy laws, mischief laws, and, quote, insulting gestures laws. They allowed black men to be incarcerated. And as the black men were incarcerated in prison, now the prison set up this leasing system with the plantations around them in the South so that the, the prisoners could be hired out to do the work on the plantations for little or no pay. It was a huge convict labor leasing market. That was one of the ways that black men were abused in the South. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had racial segregation laws enacted. They were called Jim Crow laws. And I don't know if you remember from American history, I remember this uh, Supreme Court case came out in 1896. It was called Plessy versus Ferguson. This man named Plessy in 1892 was on a train in Louisiana, and he was trying to ride the train. The problem was he was on the wrong car. He happened to be a black man who was riding on a white car, and he got told to leave, and he said, I have just as much right to be here as, as any other man, and it became an issue, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in Plessy versus Ferguson, you'd think this enlightened Supreme Court would say equality for all, but instead of doing that, they came out with a ruling that said separate but equal, right? That the issues in the South, uh, you, can have, you can have a separation, you can have segregation between whites and coloreds, was the name at the time in the South, but they were supposed to be equal. Well, anybody who knows their history of the South in the last century knows they might have been separate, but they weren't equal. And just as an example, when it came to public toilets in parks and in other places, they had three bathrooms. They had men, they had women, and of course it means white men and white women, and then they had one other bathroom, which is, by the way, progressive, I guess, because it was unisex, but it, which is a terrible joke, but it was colored bathroom, and both men and women who were black had to use that bathroom. So there's just an example of separate but not even close to being equal, right? So new Jim Lowe, new, in fact, in 1956, uh, after the Supreme Court, they struck down that separate but equal law, and that allowed blacks to be educated in white schools in the South. And you remember what happened that President Eisenhower had to send in federal troops because the black governors were not going to allow the black students to go into these white schools. And in 1956, there were five southern states. They passed 50 new Jim Crow laws deepening the segregation in the South. So this is now almost 100 years after the end of the Civil War, and yet segregation and racism was just as strong in the South, perhaps, as it was uh, during the time of the Civil War. Let me, let me talk to you about federal housing policies. In the 1930s to the 1960s, federal housing, they drew neighbor, these neighborhood lines. They looked at cities and urban centers, and the federal housing people arbitrarily drew these lines to determine which houses in neighborhoods were, de were deemed as safe and could receive federal housing loans, and which housings were deemed to be risky. The risky houses, of course, were in the black neighborhoods, 
so the black neighborhoods were excluded. This practice was called redlining because the red lines were drawn around the black neighborhoods say no federal loans for housing are going to go to these homes. And so black home ownership obviously did not happen as, as much as it, as it should have or could have because of these racist policies. Look what happened post-World War II, the GI Bill. I remember people talking about the GI Bill saying this is the greatest treatment of veterans. They, the veterans come home from fighting in World War II, freedom, democracy for the rest of the world, and they come home and America said, as a veteran, you have the right to get a federal loan to buy a home as part of the GI Bill. And many Americans, they moved to the suburbs, they bought homes uh, for the soldiers. And while technically this GI Bill was open to black soldiers and veterans. The way the GI Bill was administered, it left one million black soldiers without uh, the ability to get a home loan. Look at this for an example. In New York and New Jersey, there were 67,000 GI Bills, GI home loans that were administered. So two states, New York, New Jersey, veterans coming home from World War II, 67,000 home loans for GIs do you know how many blacks got those home loans? 100. Less than 100 out of 67,000. One historian writes about the, the GI Bill, there was no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. Let's talk about the war on drugs. Fast forward to the 1970s and the 1980s. Many of the jobs in the cities in the 1970s, those factory jobs, the manufacturing jobs, they were leaving the urban centers and going out to the suburbs. Uh, the white population were leaving the urban centers and going out to the suburbs. Unemployment in the inner city uh, went up dramatically. Drug use went up dramatically. And when drug use goes up in the inner city, so does crime. And so what did the government do in response to it? Beginning in the 1980s, the arrival of Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, they started cracking down on drugs, including prison time for not just trafficking drugs or selling drugs, but even having possession of crack cocaine. You could go to prison for that. And so what happens in the prison? The prisons grew, prison population grew exponentially in the 1980s and 90s. The prison population was only 350,000 in 1980, and yet 25 years later, the prison population went up seven or eight times. It went up to 2.3 million. And, and during that time, black males between 25 and 29, 8% of the population was in prison. Compare that to white males, same age. How many of them are in prison? Only 1%. Eight times the black population of, white, of males during that age, of that age found themselves in prison. So what did America do during this drug war? Well, it passed laws. It made drug-related crimes uh, to have mandatory prison center, sentences. Look, look at this. In 1983, the, the Department of Defense uh, had an anti-drug budget of only $33 million. 1983, $33 million budget. Ten years later, it was a billion-dollar budget to fight drugs to, quote, fight crime. Sheriffs would get elected. Bishop T.G. Jakes told this story too. He says, sheriffs were, were getting elective saying they were sheriffs that were for law and order. They were cracking down on crime. Look at my arrest rate. Look at the conviction rate that we have in our county. Let reelect me for sheriff. 
Bishop T.D. Jake said there's two reactions to that. The white people in the county say, this is great, I feel safer. The black people in the county says, I don't feel great, now I feel even more hunted. So it's, it, it's, it is amazingly different perspective. With prison population growing seven times in just 25 years. Um, let me say this, the, today, uh, this is white and black household wealth. Now, we told you what happened in the 30s to the 60s with the federal housing bill. We told you what happened with the GI Bill post-World War II. Look at the result of that. Today, the average black household earns 60% of the income of the average white household. Okay, that's not great, but that's not as bad as the second fact. The second fact is this. Black households average only 10% of white household wealth. Most of that wealth, when you talk about household wealth, you're talking about the ability to send your kids to college. You're talking about the ability to weather storms like divorce, um, uh, severe illness, uh, to do investment, maybe get a, a loan based on your equity in your loan to start a new business. All the kind of things that, that household wealth allows uh, homeowners to do. And Household, black households today still average only 10%. And you think about that. You say, wow, wow, the NBA is 75% black. The NFL, National Football League, we just started the, the season uh, this week. It was a great game between the Chiefs and the Texans. That uh, NFL is 70% black. You think about all the black uh, entertainers and musicians and music stars and all the black actors and actresses in Hollywood. You combine all that together and it's still black households only average 10% of white household wealth. Um, there is a tremendous disparity in America and it's still going on. Look at this, law enforcement cracked down harder on crime. There are a higher percentage of blacks, obviously, who've ended up in prison. A white male, look at this, look at this statistic. In, a, in his lifetime, a white male has a 1 in 23 chance of going to prison. A black male in his lifetime has a one in four chance of going to prison. We still worship. Let's talk about our churches. Uh, and I know our church. I know the demographics of our church. We still worship in America in predominantly segregated churches on Sunday mornings. Dr. Martin Luther King, his famous quote is, there is no more segregated time in the United States of America than at 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning because all the churches are segregated by race. That's not as true as it was 50 years ago, but it's still true today. Um, there's still a lot of people saying, you know, on Sunday, I just want to feel safe. I just want to be with my own people. And even saying that, there's some racial overtones, whether we realize it or not. Why is the white church in America today, why are we still mostly silent on these issues of racism and discrimination? Yes, I would admit we have come a long way in our country to overcome racism. We've come a long way to overcome racism even in our churches. I, I don't know of any church where somebody from another ethnicity or color or back, uh, racial background would not be welcome in their church. At least, you know, as far as can I come in the door and worship with you? Yes, you can. But as far as integrating, as far as making multicultural, multi-ethnic churches, we still, in the white church in America, we have a long way to go. 
Uh, I've only given you a few snippets of U.S. history in the last hundred years, but what I want to say about our history is history is to be remembered, but history is not necessarily to be celebrated. What am I asking to do with all this information, friends? I just, basically, I want you to make aware, just to be aware of what's going on. You can go on YouTube. You can watch those Phil Vischer videos. There's lots of other information out there. I just want you to do with this information two main things. I want you to listen, and I want you to care. When they did uh, the Thrive Conference with Bayside back in June, and they had a day on race relations and racial reconciliation, the main thing that I heard from black Christian leaders who were on that conference and being interviewed, the main thing they wanted the white Christian population in America to do was just listen, just listen to their pain, listen to their suffering, listen to their stories, and, and rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn and weep with those who weep. So the two main things are listening and caring. Now, there's an acrostic that we made. In fact, Amber Hernandez put this together for us. She did a tremendous job on it. It's this tremendous acrostic called H-E-L-P. What can we do to help? So you see that on your screen there. What can we do to help? We can do four things. Each of those four letters stands for something. The H is what we've just talked about. Humbly listen. In James chapter 1, it says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Sometimes we need to do a lot more listening than speaking. Sometimes we need to get a little less defensive and saying, but I'm not a racist, or I don't act that way, or I don't own any slaves, or my parents, my ancestors didn't own any slaves. And we, we jump to a defensive posture. And I think the best thing to do is instead of doing that is to just humbly listen to people's stories. The E is educate yourself. We're going to be doing that over today and for the next four weeks. I've hoped you've learned a few things about our history in America when it comes to racism and race relations and then what God thinks about it and what, how different God's view is of the human race than sometimes our attitudes are. So educate yourself. Proverbs says get wisdom. Wisdom is superior to all things. Above all, get wisdom. The L is for love your neighbor. In two weeks from today, on September 27th, we're going to talk about this parable of the Good Samaritan, which was a racially charged parable in Luke chapter 10. And then P is persist in taking action. Everybody should know what that passage in Galatians says. It says, do not weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we don't give up in persisting and taking action to end racism, if, if the church was part of the problem, friends, then the church needs to be part of the solution. God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation. We are called to make peace. We are called to be the first goers. We are called to speak up and not be silent. We are called to have compassion and not just say, oh, that was too bad, but, but to do something about it. We're going to talk about what it means to make friends with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with schoolmates and classmates who might be of another skin color, might be of another race, might be of another ethnic background, might be of, of another generation, to to take positive steps and reach out to them. Persist in taking action. H-E-L-P. You're going to see that acrostic all across the board. As you look in the mirror, friends, I, I have to do this every day. 
I have been studying this now for about three months, and I felt compelled that we need to talk about it in the church. As you look in the mirror every day, am I, you ask yourself the question, am I part of the racism problem? And if not overtly, am I part of the problem covertly? When I look at somebody who's from another race, do I automatically go to the race of the person or do I say there's a human being created in God's image and I wonder what kind of problems they're going through? How can I help them? Am I part of the racism problem or am I a peacemaker? Am I one of those people that God has empowered through His Holy Spirit who can find ways to promote racial equality and reconciliation in the world where I am? Maybe there's problems out there somewhere, but hopefully we can solve some of the problems in here, in our own sphere of influence. And I hope you'll be part of that. Because the vision for the church that Paul had in Galatians chapter 3, and this is slide 27, Paul had a vision for the church of Jesus Christ. He says this, For you are all, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Red and yellow, black, brown, and white. Lisa taught me to add the brown in there, too. Red and yellow, black, brown, and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Jew or Gentile was a huge racial divide in the first century. There was neither slave nor free. That would be an economic divide that we need to help close that gap in America. Nor is there male or female. That would be the gender divide that we're trying to resolve still here in America. And he says, in Christ, there's none of those separate categories, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we believe that in our head, let it go down the 18 inches to our heart and let us start acting that way to every single person around us who are beautiful people, all valued by Christ, all created in God's image, and all have infinite value and worth to God, and they have infinite value and worth to us, right? So what about you today? Where do you find yourself? Maybe you find yourself angry at, at, the, race, at the racism, the, the attitudes of bigotry that are still going on in our country. Maybe you find yourself a victim. Maybe you're one of those who are living in the pain and the suffering of it. Maybe you're saying, God, I don't want to live in a country like that anymore. I want to be different. I want to be part of the change. You know, wherever you find yourself as you're listening to this and how God wants you to respond, we all need God's Holy Spirit. We all need that power that only He can give to love when we don't feel like loving, to be gracious when we don't feel like doing it. When we realize God has, has poured out His grace on us and He says, I want you to pour it out on every single person on the planet, regardless of what they look like and if they look different or the same, if you think they're your people or not your people, you treat everybody the same because that's the way God does. That's the way Jesus did. Jesus says these words. It's a promise to you. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice... This is uh, slide 28, Revelation 3, verse 20. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And he's talking about the door of your heart. Jesus is speaking to people in the church. And he's saying, I'm standing at the door of your heart. I'm knocking. Can I come in, Jesus said. Can I come in and be your Savior? 
Will you allow me to come in and be the leader of your life? If anyone hears my voice, if anyone opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and that person with me. Opening the door, friends, of your life to Jesus means that you invite him to come in and you're going to say to him, Jesus, I want you to be the leader. I'm going to be the follower. I, I've, maybe I've made a mess of my life. Maybe I haven't lived quite right. Maybe I haven't been in a right relationship with God the way I've wanted to and I've just fallen away. But right now, Lord, I'm coming back to you. Please, Lord Jesus, come into my life. If that's where you are right now, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now in faith. You are the Savior. <laughs> you are the one who came into this dark, fallen world to reconcile it, to bring us back into a right relationship with our Creator God. And Lord Jesus, we, we ask you right now to come into our lives. We invite you to come in. If you're standing there and knocking, Lord, you're waiting for our reply. So, Lord, today we're replying to you. Come in, Lord Jesus. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Show me how you want to live. Show me how you want me to be a minister of reconciliation to help bring this fallen, broken world around me back into a right relationship with you. Lord, help me to do that. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the power, the energy, the resource that otherwise we would never be able to live like you want us to live. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We lift these prayers to you now, and we pray that you would help us to keep on learning, to keep humbly listening, to educate ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourself, and to persist in taking action to be reconcilers and peacemakers around us. Lord Jesus, have your way in our lives. We give them to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.